Oh, I wonder how many were sitting out there thinking it's not supposed to sound this way. <laughs> First Peter chapter 3 in your Bibles tonight, if you would please. First Peter chapter 3. It's so good to have each of you here with us this evening. We appreciate you coming out to be with us here tonight. And uh, this is our Wednesday night service and uh, Wednesday night service of the conference. And so we just have two more nights to go after this. And uh, then we will all be done. But we appreciate that you've come to be with us here tonight. Uh, we're dealing tonight with the uh, topic of pain and suffering, uh, specifically uh, when people ask the question, how can there be a just and loving God when there is so much pain and suffering in the world? Now, that's a good question. And there are a lot of people who ask the question. And there are a number of people who reject the existence of God on the basis of pain and suffering. They say, well, there cannot be, there just absolutely cannot be a just and loving God if we have so much pain and suffering on the face of the earth. And uh, we're just going to take our Bibles tonight and show you how to go about answering that objection when somebody raises it with you. So if you've got your Bible open, this stand together if you're physically able to do so. We'll look at one verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I'll read it and then pray and let you be seated. Notice what the Bible says. 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 15. The Bible says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready when? Always to give an answer. To every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Well, Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here tonight and for each and every one that has come. And I pray that as uh, we spend time in the Word of God tonight, Lord, that it would be helpful uh, for us to be better prepared and equipped when this question comes our way. And as our world grows more and more uh, secularistic and, uh, Father, more and more people uh, reject and walk away from the reality of God, uh, it's an issue that's going to be raised more and more. So I pray that you would help us, as you tell us in your word, to be ready to give an answer to those who ask us a reason of the hope that's in us with meekness and fear. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 is a verse that I've come to greatly appreciate in the word of God. It tells us to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. When you see that word sanctify in the Bible, it has a twofold meaning or twofold application, if you would please. Sometimes the word sanctify is dealing with the idea of being pure and holy. Uh, we are sanctified uh, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're made pure and holy. At other times, the meaning of the word deals with being set apart. And, uh, and we are a people that have been made pure and holy uh, in God's sight, and we have been set apart unto Him. We are God's people, are we not? Uh, of all the people on the face of the earth, we have the privilege of calling ourselves the people of God or the children of God. So that word sanctify in the Bible often applies to us, but here in this verse it says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And the application of the word there would be to set apart the Lord God in your hearts. And as you set apart the Lord God in your hearts, the scripture here says that we are to be ready and we are to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh us a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. Now that word reason in the verse comes from the Greek word apologia, from which we get the English word apologetics from. And as uh, Pastor Lang was sharing with you just a moment ago, apologetics 
is simply giving forth a reasoned defense for why we believe what we believe. You know, we as God's people ought to know what we believe, and we ought to know why we believe what we believe, and we ought to be able to give others an answer, an explanation for what we, what we believe, giving a verbal defense, a reasoned defense, uh, if you would please. And when we think about this issue of apologetics, really, honestly, the purpose of Christian apologetics is to not win an argument. That, if, if you think that's what the purpose of apologetics is, you've got it all wrong. We're not trying to win arguments. The purpose of Christian apologetics is threefold. Number one is to defend the truth. It is to defend the truth. The Lord tells us that we are to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. So we are to be people who stand up and defend the faith as defined for us in the Word of God. Remember what we saw last night? The Word of God is is our uh, rule for faith and what? Practice, correct? It's our authority for faith and practice. Why do we believe what we believe? Based on the Word of God. Why do we live the way we live? Based upon the Word of God. So one of the reasons why we have Christian apologetics is to defend the truth. Secondly, the second reason for having a Christian apologetics is impacting culture. That's another way of saying impacting the world in which we're living. We're living in a world that is getting further and further and further away from the truth, further away from Christian ideas and thoughts and truths, and further and further away from God. And we need to impact our culture for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't get the idea. Don't let Satan deceive you into believing and thinking that things are so bad that the church can no longer impact the culture for Christ. That's a wrong thinking. We certainly can impact the culture for Christ if we're willing to stand up and let our light shine before men. And if we're willing to stand up and give a defense for what we believe. And if we're willing to stand up and be aggressive in going forth and sharing the gospel with a lost and dying world, and thirdly, that's the third reason why uh, we have Christian apologetics, and that is to reach the lost for Christ. And we just happen to be living in a time when reaching the lost for Christ raises a lot of questions that get thrown our way, and we have to be prepared to give an answer for those questions such as we're thinking about here tonight. Now, the reason why 1 Peter 3.15, I have come to appreciate this verse so much, doesn't really have to do anything with what I've just said. It has to do with the fact that it says, God says that we are to be ready to give an answer always. And if God tells us to be ready to give an answer always, that means there has to be an answer to give. And I appreciate that. I am glad that there's not a question that anyone will ever ask on the face of the earth that the Word of God does not have an answer for. There's answers in the Word of God. We just have to, we have to learn them. We have to search it out. We have to study it. And we have to equip ourselves. But I'm so thankful that there are answers. You know, I grew up in church uh, as I shared with the teenagers last night, ever since I was a baby in diapers, my dad was bigger than me. He was about 6'4", weighed about 250 pounds. So when he came in my room and said, Chris, up, we're, uh, Chris get up, we're going to church. Uh, you know, I, yes, sir. 
How long can you live with 250 pounds sitting on your head, all right? Uh, it wasn't an option. Dad would say, get up and go. We're going, all right? But as I grew up in church, I didn't grow up in a Bible-teaching uh, church where we were receiving good, clear instruction from the Word of God. Uh, we would go to church. We'd carry our Bibles with us. The preacher would get up to preach, and he would stand up. He would read a text, as we did here tonight. And then we would sit in the pew and close our Bibles and set it down in the pew and just listen to whatever he had to say. And by the time he got done, we, we didn't know whether, whether what he said was from the Bible or not because we'd closed our Bibles, we'd set them down, and he wasn't really preaching in a, in a, in a way in which he was teaching us or instructing us in the Word of God. And as a result of that, I grew up being a Bible illiterate. I didn't really know what the Bible had to say. Although we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every time the church doors were open, revival services, my family was there. But how much of the Bible did I really know? Nothing. Nothing. And I suppose, you know, when I was a little kid, it really didn't bother me too much. But when I got to high school, and I got to earth science class, <laughs> ninth grade earth science class, I started hearing things against God. And I started hearing things against the Bible. And uh, as I was hearing those things, questions are beginning to generate in my mind. But at that point in time in my life, I didn't know where to turn or who to turn to to find answers to my questions. It wasn't until I was a junior in high school that the Lord intervened in my life and brought someone my way that had a knowledge of the Word of God and someone that taught the Word of God and someone who invested hours into my life answering questions. And I learned that the Bible has answers. And that's why I appreciate this verse so much. Not just because it tells us to be ready always, but because if God tells us to be ready to give an answer, there has to be an answer. And God's Word does have answers to our questions. And so tonight, we're going to answer this issue of pain and suffering. You know, how can there be a just and loving God if there's so much pain and suffering on the face of the earth? Now, before I begin to answer it, and really, I, I sort of want to give you a demonstration here tonight, if I could please, of perhaps uh, how I would go about addressing it if someone were approaching me with this question. You don't necessarily have to address it the same way that I would address it. You don't necessarily have to say the same things that I would uh, say, but I'm just going to give you some thoughts and give you an idea of how you would go about it. But before we do that, there's one other thing that we've got to see. Have you ever noticed uh, in reading the gospel accounts how Jesus at times would answer a question by asking a question? Have you ever noticed that? I'll give you some illustrations real quickly. And uh, look over in Matthew chapter 19, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. The Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles in the uh, pews there, or just look on with your neighbor so you can see this, because I want you to see what the Bible has to say for yourself. Don't just listen to what I have to say tonight. I want you to listen, that's for sure. But I want you to see what the Word of God has to say. 
And in Matthew chapter 19, there was a rich young ruler that came to the Lord Jesus uh, one time, and he asked Jesus this question. Look down your Bibles, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Notice what he says. And behold, one came and said unto him, now look what he asks, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I have e may have eternal life? So here's the question that's being raised by this rich young ruler. He calls Jesus good master, and he says, What good thing shall I do that I, I may have eternal life? Notice how Jesus responds back to that in verse 17. And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? Did he go directly and give the guy the answer to the question that he was asking? No. First of all, he asked the man, why callest thou me good? And then he goes on to say, There is none good but one, and that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. We're not going to get into the rest of that conversation. I just want to illustrate here tonight that the Lord Jesus Christ was asking the man a question. He raised the question. Jesus, instead of answering directly, raised the question in response and I believe that Jesus is doing this in order to get the man to think. To get him to think. Look over, if you would, please, in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And in Matthew chapter 22, we see the Pharisees are taking counsel together in how they might entangle Jesus in his talk. So think about that. You know, how would you like to have somebody, you know, a group of guys coming to see you, Pastor Lang, and, uh, and you know that in their heart, they are coming to trip you up in your words. How would that make you feel? Oh, I'm not home. <laughs> would not be a good feeling, would it? And so we've got these Pharisees, these religious guys of Jesus' day. They're coming to see the Lord Jesus Christ for the sole purpose of trying to entangle the Lord Jesus Christ in his speech. Now notice, if you would please, in verse 16. Well, verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might tangle him in his talk. Verse 16. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man... For thou regardest not the person of man. Now, all that's flowery. And Jesus knew that the reality of their heart was not right. They weren't, they weren't saying the truth. That's not how they really felt about the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice they go on to ask this question in verse 17. He says, uh, they, they said, tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not. So they're asking the Lord Jesus Christ a question. And Jesus, in verse 18, perceived their wickedness. He knew that they were not sincerely asking because they wanted the truth. They were simply trying to trick the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby they could accuse him. And notice he responds back with a question, but this time the question is a question of rebuke. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus says this, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Whoa. Whoa. Now that's the gentle, loving Jesus that we know. 
Amen? He just knew the reality of their hearts. He knew their ill intent. And, uh, and he, as the Son of God, is omniscient. He knows all things, does he not? And he just was responding properly to that, but in doing so, posing it as a question. I'm just illustrating here tonight. Just give you uh, three illustrations of how Jesus at times would respond to questions by asking questions. We see this also in, uh, in this chapter down in verse 42, if you would please. By the way, this would be an interesting chapter to go home and read. You don't have to read it tonight, but it would be a very interesting chapter for you to go home and read the whole chapter. Because there's this interaction that's taking place in, uh, in Matthew chapter 22 between Jesus and the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees. All this interaction is taking place. All those groups, uh, the Pharisees, Herodians, the Sadducees, they were all opposed the Lord Jesus Christ. They were all against the Lord Jesus Christ. And it would give you a lot of insight into how Jesus dealt with these people. If you just take your Bible and get it open sometime and read Matthew 22, thinking these people are against the Lord Jesus Christ, how does he handle their opposition? Notice, if you would please, a little bit further down in the chapter, look in verse 42. In verse 42, well, verse 41, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? So now he's posing a question to them. Hey, guys, what do you think about Christ? And um, he goes on to say, whose son is he? Okay. What's your opinion? What's your opinion, Pharisees? Uh, whose son do you think uh, Jesus or the Christ is? And they say unto him, the son of David. Okay. All right. You say he's the son of David. Interesting thought. Verse 43. He saith unto them, how then did David in spirit call him Lord? If the Christ is David's son, what's David? Why does David have any business calling him Lord? And he goes on to say this, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, and he's quoting the book of Psalms, if you would please. Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? Gotcha. They didn't know how to answer that, did they? There was no answer. Either you come to Christ and you accept Him for who He is or you walk away in unbelief. Now, I'm just showing you here tonight how Jesus at times answered questions with questions. And that's how I go about responding to the person who says to me, how can there be a just and loving God when there's so much pain and suffering in the world. I respond to that with questions. And some of the questions that I, I, I respond with, I'm not trying to stump them. I'm trying to get them to think. Because when you're dealing with people who are scoffers, 
and you're dealing with people who are skeptics, when you're dealing with people who are opposed to the truths of the Bible, opposed to the Christian faith, many times you just need to get them to think with you. You have to pose some things to get their mind going. It's not that necessarily in this initial conversation you have with them that you're going to win them over to your position, but at least you give some food for thought for which the Holy Spirit of God later on can use that to get the wills going in their minds. Have you ever had the Holy Spirit of God get something going in your mind that you just had to keep pondering and keep considering and keep thinking? Holy Spirit of God, as we go into this world and as we seek to reach this world for Christ, we're, we're working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is in this world reproving the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's seeking to bring people to Christ. We're seeking to bring people to Christ. And we labor together in fellowship with the Holy Spirit as we seek to win others to the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do I go about addressing this issue of how can there be a just and loving God when there's so much pain and suffering in the world? Here's the first question I'm going to ask. And uh, it may surprise you, and I'm not, I'm not trying this. Uh, I don't ask this question in order to get the folks all riled up. I just, I just ask it to get them to think with me. And the first question I, get, I ask is simply this. Who says God is just and loving? Who says God is just and loving? He said, Brother Chris, come on, man. Don't you believe that, that Jesus... And God, they're just and they're loving? Absolutely. Our God is a just God. Our God is a loving God. But those folks are denying His existence on the basis of Him being just and loving. How can there be a just and loving God? They're saying there is no God. He doesn't exist. Why? Because a just and loving God would not allow pain and suffering on the face of the earth. Do we have pain and suffering on the earth? Yes, we do, don't we? So that, does that mean that the just and loving God does not exist? Well, in their mind, they say, well, that's right. He doesn't exist. So I'm going to ask them the question, who says God's just and loving? Now, God is just and God is loving. Two of my favorite verses concerning that are Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4 and Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Let's look briefly at both of them, if you would, please. Deuteronomy chapter 32. The book of Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy chapter 32. Again, I'm just asking that question to get them to think with me. Who says God's just and loving? You, de you, deny, you deny God. And now you're telling me He's just and loving when you don't even believe in Him? Deuteronomy chapter 32. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, notice if you would please. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4, this is speaking about the Lord and, the, and describing God. And notice in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4, the Bible says, He, God, is the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are judgment. In the verse, when the Bible says all God's ways are judgment, it's talking about the fact that they're just. They're just. A God of truth. And He is without 
iniquity. See, when you accuse God of injustice because there's pain and suffering on the face of the earth, you're saying, God, you, you, you've done wrong. You have done wrong. And yet the Bible says that God is without iniquity. I mean, if God has done wrong, and if God is with sin, who wants that God? That puts Him on the same level of us. And truthfully, we don't make good gods. Don't put me in charge of this world. Don't put me in charge of this universe. Man, if I was God and in charge, I would have zapped a lot of people already. We don't make good gods. Only God is a good God because He's holy, He's righteous, he ju- He's just, He always does that which is right. And without him, with Him there is no iniquity. Notice the end of the verse. Just and right is He. So whatever God does in this universe, whatever God is in this universe, He is just and He does right. He's a righteous God. Look over in Genesis chapter 18, if you would please. Genesis chapter 18, we'll look at a verse in Genesis 18 and verse 25. It's a verse that has helped me so much in life. There are a lot of things that go on in this world that I don't understand. There are a lot of things in this world that, you know, just... Uh, seem not to be right. They seem not to be fair. And, uh, and, the, and the one verse that I keep coming back to often, 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 often is Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25. I hang my hat on it. I hang everything on it. And I'm going to continue to hang on to it. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, at the end of the verse, notice the phrase, shall not the judge of the earth do right? And I'm committed that God always does right. I may not always understand. I may not always see it. But I'm committed to the fact that God always does what is right. So I'm just asking that first question to provoke thought and further discussion. Because when you provoke thought, you further discussion. And sometimes when you're talking to a skeptic, you know, they want to shut the conversation down real quick. So in order to shut the conversation down real quick, hey, how can you believe in a just and loving God when there's so much pain and suffering in this world? All right? Issue's done. God's not real. Conversation's over with. I'm going back inside. That's, that's their argument. I don't want the conversation to be over. I don't want them to go back inside. So I want to ask them a question to get them to think and to provoke further conversation. You see, when I come back and say to them, who says God's just and loving? And I'm going to say it in a kind way. I'm not going to be ugly and I'm not going to be mean. I'm not going to be mean-spirited. You don't want anyone to the truth by being mean-spirited. The Bible says speaking the truth in love. And we've got to learn to do that. To speak the truth and not compromise the truth, but to do it in kindness, to do it in compassion, to do it in love. Jude 22, if some have compassion, making a difference. You know, people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. They just need to know that you care for them. 
that you care for them. And so I'm, I'm using that to, to not shut them down, but to get them to think, to provoke further conversation. And more times than not, when I ask that question, who's, who says God's just and loving? They're going to come back and they're going to say something on their, you don't believe God's just and loving? No, I believe God's just and loving. But you're denying his existence. Because you don't think that a just and loving God can allow pain and suffering on the face of the earth. How can you say he's just and loving when you don't even believe he's real? Question number two. Question number two. And you want to get to the second question. You don't want the conversation in there. Question number two, where did death and dying and pain and suffering come from? Do you know the answer to that question? Where did death and dying and pain and suffering come from? See, pain and suffering brings with it death and dying, does it not? So we understand that there's pain and suffering in this world. We understand that there's death and dying in this world. It's, it's evident. I mean... Uh, I, I don't know where, but somewhere in this town I've seen a cemetery. I don't know where, but, you know, I mean, it's either got to be up and down this road or up and down that road, okay? Because that's basically the two roads I've been on. So somewhere along the way I've seen a cemetery. And it's not uncommon when you go to a town that you see a cemetery. And what does a cemetery say to us? There's death. There's dying. And before that death and dying came, what did people endure? Pain and suffering. So where did that originate? Where did it come from? Well, the skeptic doesn't have an answer for that. They don't know why there's death. They don't know why there's, 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 there's dying. They don't know why there's pain. They don't know why there's suffering on the face of the earth. But the Bible gives us the answer. The Bible tells us why there's pain and suffering on this earth. The Bible tells us why there's death and dying on this earth. Look over in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, if you would, please. The book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, there was a time in history past, as we saw last night, where God formed man of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and man became a living what? Soul. And that first man's name was, was what, church? Adam. Adam was the first living man. And God was very kind to Adam. God created a beautiful place for Adam to live. It was called the Garden of Eden. Now, Adam wasn't in the Garden of Eden just twiddling his thumbs day in and day out and day in and day out. The Bible says that God had a job for him to do. Notice, if you would please, in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So he was a gardener. Adam was the man in charge of the garden. And he was dressing it and he was keeping it. Along with that, God put him in this beautiful place and he gave him... One prohibition and one warning. The prohibition was, there's a particular tree you're not supposed to eat of. 
Notice, if you would please, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. So the prohibition. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, this is wrong. Don't do that. He gives him a warning. Notice what the verse goes on to say. God says this. He says, not to partake of that forbidden fruit. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely, what? Die. So get the setting. Adam's in the Garden of Eden. It's a beautiful place. He's got a job to perform uh, in there uh, day in and day out. And God says, now here's a tree over here. You can eat of the fruit of any of these trees, but this particular tree over here, Adam, you don't eat it. And if you eat it, the very day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. Then we come to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We don't know how much time elapsed from Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 3. We have no way of knowing. The Bible doesn't say. And so how long was it from when God gave the prohibition and the warning until men fell or disobeyed God? We don't know. But when we come to Genesis chapter 3, we find the fall of man. And notice in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 6, where the Bible says, And when the woman saw the tree, that it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, I'm not here tonight, ladies, to uh, chide you ladies, because Eve led her husband into disobedience, okay? So you can chill. He knew what he was doing. And he directly disobeyed God. She not knew what she was doing. She directly disobeyed God. And at this point in history, death entered the world. When you have death entering the world, you have pain and suffering. Because something has to lead up to death. These bodies are what the Bible calls mortal bodies. Mortal means subject to death. We're all subject to death, are we not? One of these days, the Lord's going to take our mortal body and he's going to put on immortality. We'll have a new body that will be not subject to death. That'll be a great day, won't it? No more gray hair. No more glasses. That will be a great day. No more arthritis. No more laying in bed for 15 minutes telling yourself you have to get up before you finally roll over and get out of that bed. All the things we experience in this life will be over at that point in time. It'll be a glorious day. But ever since this time in the Garden of Eden, Man has been subject to death and dying and pain and suffering ever since.
That's how it originated. It originated with the disobedience of man in the garden. Now, real quickly, let's turn to Romans chapter 5, where we see a commentary on this. I just want you to see the verse, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I want you to see how Romans chapter 5 describes what took place. And then from Romans chapter 5, we're going to go to Romans chapter 8, and I want you to see a very interesting verse in the Bible. In Romans chapter 5, by the way, have you discovered there's a lot of interesting stuff in the Bible? There really is. In Romans chapter 5, notice if you would please in verse 12, the Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Who was that, church? That was Adam. So by one man, Adam, sin into the world. And notice it says, and what? Death by sin. God had warned him. For in the day that thou least thereof, thou shalt surely what? Die. So now death came upon the world. And the Bible says, and so death passed upon all men. Oh, that rascal Adam. If I could only get my hands on him. Man, he brought death into the world. And death has passed upon all of us. Yes, but notice what the verse goes on to say. For that all have sinned. Haven't we walked in the same shoes of Adam? Haven't we all disobeyed God? God says, thou shalt not lie, and what have we done? And God says, thou shalt not take things that don't belong to you, thou shalt not steal. What have we done? We've taken things that don't belong to us. God says, honor your father and your mother. What have we done? We've dishonored him. Thou shalt have no other, other gods before me. Do we always have the right priority for God in our lives? Many times we put other things in front of God, do we not? Whatever we put in front of God becomes a God to us, an idol, if you would, please. See, we've all disobeyed God. So we can't blame Adam for his disobedience. We have to share part of the blame ourselves, do we not? Truth of the matter is, if we had been back in the Garden of Eden, you and I would have done the same thing. Because the propensity of the human heart is not one toward obeying God. It is one toward disobeying God. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The next verse goes on to say, I, the Lord, knows the heart. He knows. He knows our hearts. And so we see the entry into this world of suffering and pain death and dying because of sin. And ever since that very day, the Bible tells us that all of creation, everything that God had made, is groaning and travailing. Notice, if you would please, over in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, here's that interesting verse that I I, I said we're going to look at. And it is. It's a very interesting verse. Look, if you would please, in Romans chapter 8, in verse 21 or 22, excuse me. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, the Bible says, for we know that the whole creation, the whole creation, not just mankind, but all of God's creation, the Bible says, groaneth and travaileth in, look at the word, pain. Was the world affected by Adam's disobedience? And ever since that disobedience, the world has been feeling pain. Pain and suffering because of man's own disobedience. 
And it says it travels in pain together until now. It's talking about the future time when the Lord's going to remove the curse from this earth and there will be no more pain. Isn't it going to be a great day when we get to heaven and there is no more suffering, there is no more pain, there is no more death, there is no more dying? That's going to be a hallelujah moment, isn't it? When we get to heaven and experience that for all of eternity, all of eternity. So where did death and dying come from? Where did pain and suffering come from? You ask them and ask them to give you an answer. They don't have an answer. Well, could I explain to you how the Bible answers that question? And then you just do what you show, well, I've just done here tonight. You explain the fall of man in the Garden of Eden and how that brought death into the world with death, pain, and suffering, and all of creation is groaning and trailing in pain, wanting to be delivered from this curse, if you would please. Moving on to question number three, you see the implication um, in all that the person is saying is that life isn't fair. Isn't that the implication of what they're saying? That's the implication. Life is not fair. So my next question is this. Is life always fair on this earth? Is life always fair on this earth? That's my third question when I ask them. And the answer to that is, church, no. no! You know, the sooner we learn that in life, the better off we are. If we think everything's going to be fair in life, everything's going to be just in life, we're going to live a disillusioned life. Because we're going to realize real quick in life that, that life is not fair. You don't always get treated fair. Things don't always uh, happen in a just uh, manner. In fact, sometimes things happen to you and, and you say, that's not fair. Is it only me that does that? Yes? Okay. Thank you, Pastor Lee. <laughs> we were friends until this moment. I'm teasing No, life is not always fair. It's not always fair. You see, there are bad things that happen to good people. Good people suffer. They suffer unfairness. They suffer injustice. Um, We're not going to turn there tonight, but I use the illustration. Read Genesis chapters 37 through 40. And when you begin to read Genesis, uh, Genesis chapters 37 through 40, it tells a story about a man by the name of Joseph. Joseph grew up with some brothers, big brothers. Big brothers didn't like Joseph. In fact, the Bible says they hated Joseph. Because Joseph was the favored son of daddy. Now dad's Please, please, never have a favorite child. Love all of your children equally. It will just cause problems. And because Daddy loved Joseph, he made him this coat of many colors. And every time Joseph would go toward his brothers, and they saw him coming, the expression is, a mile off. You see somebody coming a mile off, okay? Well, Joseph just stood out because he had that coat of many colors. But what did that represent to his brothers? Daddy likes Joseph. Daddy likes Joseph. Daddy likes Joseph. He doesn't like us. And the Bible says 
that that grew and grew and grew and grew to the point that they hated him. One day they're out in the fields keeping watch over the flocks. Joseph comes their way, and the brothers get together and say, here he comes. You ready? We're going to kill him. You with me? She's with me. All right. (laughs) Watch out for her. (laughs) She might get you in the parking lot. Joseph is coming. They're ready to kill him. If it wasn't for one brother by the name of Reuben, Reuben Reuben subsided their hatred a little bit. And so instead of, he talked them out of of killing him, but they threw him in a pit. And I believe the indication of Scripture is that Joseph's in this pit and he's pleading with his brothers for his life. And along come some Ishmaelites, and the brothers say, well, hey, we can get rid of the brother. We won't kill him but we'll sell him. You in it? She's still in on it. They sell Joseph. He's taken off to Egypt. Brothers kill a lamb, take Joseph's coat, put some blood on it, carry it home to daddy. Lie, 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 lie. We don't know whose this is, daddy. But it looks like something that's not good. Daddy knew it was Joseph's. And so daddy thought, Joseph's dead. An animal attacked him and got him. And daddy went into grieving. And he was never comforted. Never comforted. He grieved for years over his son that he thought was dead. And the brothers lived with that guilt in their heart. But Joseph's down in Egypt. He sold as a slave to Potiphar. And uh, there, God is blessing Joseph. God sees the injustice. He sees all that's happened in Joseph's life. And God is standing strong on behalf of Joseph's behalf. And as, as he's laboring as a slave in Potiphar's house, things are going so well, Potiphar just commits the whole household to Joseph's hand. Mrs. Potiphar comes along and she, she, she's a wicked woman. And she wants, she wants Joseph to commit immorality with her to the point that one day she grabs him, grabs him by his coat, and he leaves the coat and flees. He says, I can't do that wickedness before God. He had the right perspective about sin, didn't he? It's before God. It's before God. I can't do that wickedness before God. And he flees and he gets out, but Potiphar comes home and Mrs. Potiphar again lies. Joseph's the recipient of some more lies. He gets accused unjustly and thrown in prison. He spends 10 years in prison. And finally, there's a butler and a baker that comes and gets thrown in the prison as well. And Joseph says to those guys, you know, when you guys, uh, when you get out, hey, listen, remember me. Would you speak to Pharaoh on my behalf? I'm in here, but I didn't do anything wrong. Would you, would you talk to Pharaoh and see if something could be done for me? And, uh, and they get out. The baker loses his life. The butler is spared. And the butler forgets all about Joseph. Joseph is there for 10 long years in that prison. Here's a guy that could have been really mad at God. He could have really been angry at God. 
because he's just being mistreated over and over and over and over. Life is not fair. Life is not just. He could have grabbed hold of that and become bitter, angry, and said, there just can't be a God. But you know the rest of the story. He was elevated to Pharaoh's right-hand man, and God used him to spare the Jewish nation. The bad things sometimes happen to good people. Another illustration, Job chapter 1. Let's go to Job real quickly. In Job chapter 1, in the book of Job, in Job chapter 1, I want you to see how the Bible describes this man, Job. And in Job chapter 1, right before the book of Psalms, if you would please, in Job chapter 1, look in verse 1. In Job chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect. When the Bible uses the word perfect there, it doesn't mean he was without sin. That's how we think about the word perfect today. When some, something's perfect, we would say, wow, there's no flaws in it. You know, there's no sin in it. It's just, it's just perfect. The word here is being referenced to being mature. Job was a mature person. And he was upright. He was a guy that you can count on for doing what was right. He didn't walk around compromising things that were wrong. He just walked uprightly. And he was one that feared God and he, he eschewed evil. If evil was over here, Job's way over here. He's running away from it. He just kept himself out of evil. He was a guy that was doing what was right in God's sight. Now, we're not going to read the rest of Job chapter 1, but if you read Job chapter 1, you realize that Job experienced a financial disaster all in one day. He lost his oxen, he lost his sheep, he lost his camels, and we're not talking like, you know, he lost a couple oxen here and a few sheep over there and a few camels over there. Job was a wealthy man, and he lost it all. Every bit of his wealth he lost in one day. He lost the majority of his servants in that same day. And to make matters worse, all ten of his children were killed on that day. Talk about a day in life that you want to never remember again. That was a day. It's not even fair to call it a bad hair day. It was a crisis day. It was a terrible day in Job's life. What did Job do? He bowed down and worshipped God. He said, Naked came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. If that day wasn't bad enough, you read Job chapter 2, and in Job chapter 2, financial disaster, lost his children, now he loses his health. From the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he's afflicted with boils. And they are so severe that he goes, find, he, he goes out and he finds himself just a heap of dirt to sit in. And he takes a, a piece of clay pottery and he begins to scrape himself because he is in such misery. His physical pain and suffering is so severe that when three of his friends come to bring him comfort, they look at the man and they cannot believe what he looks like. 
is this our friend Job? And instead of saying a word to that man, they sat down in that dirt for seven days and said nothing. They just didn't know how to respond. It's like walking into one of your church members, one of your fellow believers' hospital room who would have bone cancer and looking at them saying, Bone cancer is one of the worst. You sort of turn yellow with it. It's terrible. Was Job a good man? Bad things happened to him? Is life always fair? Question number four. Is it fair to blame God for that which is not God's fault? Is it fair to blame God for that which is not God's fault? That's the question you want to ask. You're blaming God for this unfairness. But it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. All the pain, all the suffering on the face of the earth, can we blame God for it? It didn't originate with God. It originated with man when man disobeyed God. So what right do we have to blame God for that which is not God's fault? Now I take that thought a little further and this is where I reverse things with them. And I'm going to make a transition in my conversation with these people. Yeah? Is it right for us to blame God for that which is not God's fault? My friend, if you want to get upset with the injustice of this world, why don't you get upset over the injustice that was poured out upon the Son of God? There was no one who was treated more unfairly than Jesus Christ. He was condemned. Not because he had done anything wrong. He was condemned at the hands of an angry mob. When Pilate said to the Jewish people, Behold your king, they cried away with him, Crucify him, away with him. Pilate responded back by saying, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, we have no king but Caesar. The Jews hated Caesar. The Jews hated Rome's rule. But they hated Jesus more. They hated him without a cause. Now stay with me. The greatest injustice that has ever been carried out on this earth is the injustice that came against the person of Jesus Christ. The greatest evil has brought about the greatest good. 
You see, often, God will bring good out of evil. I can't always explain the why of evil or the why of a particular thing is happening to a particular person. But I know that God is able to bring good out of wrong, good out of evil. Stop and think about it. What good did God bring out of Jesus' unjust suffering? Well, one thing, sin's penalty was fully paid and satisfied on our behalf. That's a good thing, isn't it? 1 Peter chapter 3. Look in your Bibles, if you would, please. 1 Peter chapter 3. In the book of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, as sinners, we owe a debt that we cannot pay. And the Lord Jesus Christ, through His unjust treatment and His suffering on the cross, paid that debt on our behalf so that we could be set free. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, notice if you would please, in 1 Peter chapter 3, look down in verse 18. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, the Bible says this. If you don't have this verse marked in your Bible, I'd encourage you to mark it. Notice it says, For Christ also hath once suffered. Why did he suffer? For sins. There on that cross, although he was uh, the recipient of injustice at the hands of the Romans, at the hands of the Jews, at the hands of the multitudes of the world, yet through all of that, he was dying for us. And paying our sin debt. He was suffering for you and I, my friend. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just, the one who's never done wrong, for the unjust, those of us that just know nothing but wrong. That he, Jesus, might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. There's a tremendous amount of good that came out of that injustice. Since penalty of death was paid in full, the veil of the temple was rent in half, from top to bottom, according to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51. You know what that means? That means that man now has direct access to God because of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But if we'll go by him, we'll come to the Father. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. He's able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. We have direct access to God. God's great gift of salvation was purchased. It was provided for all who would come to place their faith in Christ. Look over in Ephesians chapter 2, if you would please. Ephesians chapter 2. Just stay with me. I'm almost done. We're not going to be lengthy here tonight. In Ephesians chapter 2, notice if you would please. In Ephesians chapter 2, look in your Bibles and look down in verses 8 and 9. Some of the greatest verses in all the Bible are found right here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. My friend, do you know that salvation, that getting to heaven, is a gift that God is willing to give to you? It was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. He shed His blood to pay the price of our salvation. And the Bible here says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace, by God's kindness, we're saved through what? Faith. When we come to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Dear God, I'm a sinner. I can't pay my sin debt. I have no way of saving myself. 
But your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, laid down his life, was buried and rose again the third day to pay my sin debt and to forgive me and to provide me a home in heaven. I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him to save my soul. God says when you do that, salvation is not of yourselves. It's not what you do. It's the gift of God. It's what God paid for through Jesus' death. It's given to us freely. And the next verse says, Not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, most people, when you talk about religion, you talk about faith, they just sort of err right there. Because they think that getting to heaven is something they have to earn. It's something they have to do. That they get there by their works. But my friend, no work that you and I will ever do on this earth will ever pay for one sin that we've ever committed. You can go to church all your life and die and go to hell. You can get baptized and die and go to hell. You can live a good life and give to charity and do good deeds and die and go to hell. The Bible says that salvation is not of works lest any man should boast. What that means is simply this. If we could work our way to heaven, we'd brag about it. And those of us who are going to heaven are not going to heaven because we're bragging about what good things we've done. We're going to heaven because we've put our faith in what Jesus Christ has done. For by grace you're saved through faith. Greatest act of injustice on the face of the earth was carried out upon the person of Jesus Christ. But think about the great good that God brought from it. He brought great good from that pain and that suffering. And when we by faith accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior... We have the privilege and honor of being called the sons of God. It is a privilege. It's an honor to be able to call yourself a child of God. Look over in 1 John chapter 3, please. 1 John chapter 3. Almost done, so stay with me. Say, preacher, you going to preach all night? No, I'm not. We're almost done. 1 John chapter 3. I'm going home tonight. Going to bed. I think I got in bed last night about midnight, so good teenage meeting we had. That was great. First John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, notice what it says. Behold, verse 1, what, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Isn't that beautiful? It is a beautiful thought. How much God loves us that we would be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now my concluding statement to the, to the skeptic and scoffer who asked me that question to begin with, if we get this far in the conversation, sometimes you don't. But if I get that far in the conversation, my concluding statement is going to be something on the order of, of, of like, my friend. And I always call him my friend. I'm not their enemy. I'm, I'm, I'm a friend to them. I want them to be a friend to me. I don't know what you've gone through in life. And I don't know what a loved one of yours has gone through in life. And I don't know what a friend of yours has gone through in life. 
You see, more times than not, the person who embraces this argument has experienced some kind of pain, some kind of suffering. Either it's been some pain or suffering they've gone through, a pain or suffering that they've seen a loved one gone through, or pain or suffering that they've seen a friend go through. And they just don't know how to explain it. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to reconcile it in their mind. So I just, you know, I just say, listen, I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know what a family member may have gone through. I don't know what a friend has gone through. But I do know this. There's a God up in heaven who loves you, who wants you to be with him for all of eternity. Now, will you put your faith in Jesus Christ to be the one to save you from your sin? And give you eternal life. And if you will, he'll save you. He'll save you. And not only will he save you, he will become a father to you. And as he becomes a father to you, instead of thinking of God as, you meanie, you meanie, letting that happen to me, you'll learn to realize that God is the God of all comfort. That no matter what you go through in life, that no matter what you face in life, God will be there to bring you comfort. Let's look at two last verses and then we're done. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Or chapter 1, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, real quickly, verses 3 and 4, it says this about God. And what a beautiful thought it is. It says, who comforteth us in all our tribulation. He's the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our what? Tribulation. It's not that he just comforts us through some of our problems. He comforts us through all of our problems. Every one of them. Life sometimes gets really hard. It really does. It gets real hard. Sometimes it gets so hard that I'm ready just to say, Lord, would you just take me to heaven? Would you just, would you just take me to heaven? It's, it's too painful. It's too painful. And the Lord says, no. I'm not ready for you yet. But I'm going to show you what I can do for you. I'm going to bring you some comfort. And he's able to comfort us in all of our tribulations that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. You see, when you go through the heartache, you go through the sorrow, you go through the trouble, you go through the difficulties, God brings comfort to your heart and strength to bring you through, then God can use you as a means of comforting somebody else. I know how you feel because of what I went through. But I'm going to tell you something. God brought me through. God was faithful. God gave me this promise. It may not encourage you as much as it encouraged me, but this verse really helped me a lot. And you share that with them. And they begin to realize there's other people in this world who are hurting just like us. And they know that there's a God that's real. And they can turn to Him and find comfort and help and strength in that great time of need. Now, I want to encourage each of you as I conclude here tonight to uh, pick up this little pamphlet. Why would a loving God allow death and suffering? It was written by a PhD scientist. 
Jonathan Safari, and it is excellent. It's only like 28 pages. And I want to encourage each of you to get yourself, or 32 pages, excuse me, uh, to get yourself a copy of it, because it will go into further depth than what I've gone into here tonight. And you can get that through Creation Ministries International. Creation Ministries International. The website is just creation.com. Creation.com. And the title of the book, it is, Why Would a Loving God Allow Death and Suffering? If I'd thought about it in advance, I would have taken, got some and brought them with me, but I didn't. So uh, I apologize for that. And then secondly, I, I just want to encourage you to begin praying that God will help you. God will help you to take the things that you're hearing in this conference and be able to use them as you have conversations with people out there. And then thirdly, if you're here tonight and you never have, by faith, taken God's gift of salvation, just putting your faith in Christ, saying, God, I I know I need to be saved from my sin. I know I need your forgiveness. Put your faith in Christ tonight. He'll save you. He'll give you a home up in heaven. And tomorrow night, we're going to deal with the validity of the Christian faith. And so we encourage you to come back tomorrow night. What sets the Christian faith apart from all other faiths on the face of the earth? Why should it be the faith that we choose, that we embrace? A lot of people today who are saying one faith is just as good as another faith. And we believe that the Christian faith is the superior faith, the faith that should be embraced by everyone. So... The validity of the Christian faith. We'll talk about that tomorrow night. Let's pray.